Hello, everybody. This is Sam Kahane. You're listening to Allison and Sam's Big Adventure. This podcast is about our six-month journey around the world. And for me, you know, travel isn't about where you go. It's who you meet. So this podcast is all about the most interesting people I meet, their crazy stories, uh, tidbits on life from them, and so forth. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Allison and Sam's Big Adventure podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Sam Kahane. You're listening to Allison and Sam's Big Adventure. Uh, We're here in Cambridge, and I have an amazing guest here. I'm interviewing Eva Simmons. Uh, She went to school with Allison's mom, Lynn. Uh, She was a BBC journalist for 25 years and is an amazing storyteller. Uh, So, Eva, thanks for joining us and being our uh, our host and guide here in Cambridge today. I appreciate it. A pleasure. Very nice to see you, and I'm delighted that you were able to come. Yes, and you've been an amazing host so far. We've walked around the Cambridge Library. And could you describe where, you. where we are right now to the listeners? Okay, so we are now sitting on the lawn of the college where Alison's mum and I were students, Lucy Cavendish College, and we are facing what used to be the dining hall when Alison's mum, Lynn, and I were here and is now used for other purposes because they've built a big proper dining hall in the meanwhile. Because when we came here, there were literally just three buildings. This, where the dining hall and the library was, the library was one room, and a building called Barmore, which was residential for people to live in, sleep in, which I didn't because I lived locally anyway. And then the main building, which is now called College House, I think, which was where the main admin and everything was. And we had a lot of our classes there. And I think we had some classes in Strathaird as well. You can take a photograph if you like. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so it brings back lots of memories being here. And of course, having just seen Lynn, Alison's mum, uh, you know, reinforces the memories and then being here where we were together. So... Uh, it is lovely, and we were just talking before about Cambridge's growth. I mean, you just talked about how much this area has grown. Um, could you tell the listeners, you know, the current population and what it's expected to be in a few years? Well, when I came here, it was about 100,000, and it has grown and grown. And I'm actually not sure, I'm not sure anyone's sure <laughs> just what the current population is. Somebody said 120,000, 130,000, but where? The central core of Cambridge is unchanging. I mean, it's these buildings, largely medieval buildings, some 19th century, the college, the university buildings. They are unchanging pretty much. I mean, they might have modern elements inside, you know, hot water in the bathrooms and things, which they didn't have then. But the exteriors are the same. But as soon as you get away from the city centre, there's construction going on everywhere, north, south, east and west. In the northwest, the university is building what's the equivalent of a new town, which will have about 30,000 people living in it. To the south, developers are building houses and flats, which will have more thousands. And, I, and also business and industry are growing, of course. People are coming here because of the businesses and industries, also founding them to attract more people. And so... Uh, I heard an estimate that in a few years' time, I think by about 2030 or something like that, there'll be a million people here. 
which wow. doesn't seem that big for a city if you think about cities in, I don't know, China or the United States or wherever. But for Cambridge to be a million people is a big deal. And there are consultations going on now about transportation because the transportation system is awful. And for many years, people have been promoting the idea of having an underground system. And I personally am all in favour of that. But of course, when you have buildings that are a thousand years old, you've got to be very careful how you go about it so as not to damage a priceless piece of history and architecture, you know. Of course. So, so, so of there's course. a meeting coming up in a couple of months which I'm planning to go to to discuss all that, you know, to get residents' yes. opinions. Well, we hope the transportation can get close to as good as it, is, as it is in London. It was incredible. The best public transportation I've ever seen. Um, and Eva, you have a fascinating story um, about how your family and yourself ended up in Cambridge. Um, could you share that? Okay. So my parents lived in Germany before the war. In fact, my entire family comes from Germany, from Berlin in particular. And my parents were very, they were Jewish, mm -hmm. and they were also very political on the left. And when Hitler came to power in 1933, he started targeting people on the left before he targeted Jews even. Mm. And because my parents were so political, they followed everything that went along. You know, my father, well, both of them probably, read Mein Kampf, you know, which was Hitler's manifesto of how he planned to do away with the communists and the Jews and uh, anyone else he didn't like. And was the left party, was that considered communist? He, they were communists and a lot of people were but there were also social democrats like my grandparents who also I mean they were you know they they were also targeted in due course they were targeted for political reasons initially and then just Jews were targeted anyway and so very soon after Hitler came to I mean my parents followed his progress before he came to power and Suddenly, he's and his henchmen are the government. And my father said, we have got to get out of here. And because they came to that conclusion so very early, they were able to get out relatively easily. Later on, it got harder and harder. And as your listeners may know, or some of them may know, many people, especially Jews, never made it away from there because by the time they... Either they refused to leave because it had been their homeland forever and a day and they didn't want to leave, or because by the time they made up their minds to leave, it was impossible to get out. And then, of course, the Second World War, the remainder of Jews were trapped there. After the war broke out, nobody could go anywhere. But my parents left in 1933, and they uh, apparently... My mother told me once they applied to go to the United States, but they didn't get the permit. Mm. My father went to Paris to see whether maybe they could make a life there. I could have been French, who knows? <laughs> but in the end, they were able to come here. I guess they got the permission to come here. And I'm not sure quite on what terms they came. I think they must have come on tourist visas or something because they had to renew their visas every six months and I know my mother told me that they were terrified that they would be refused for some reason and forced back to Germany which would have been you know like a death sentence 
but we now know with hindsight apparently they didn't do that to anyone what they did do and this is an in, you asked me for stories this is an mm. interesting story which people in the United States and elsewhere may not know when the war broke out Britain decided to take no chances with their Jewish with their German sorry with their German and Austrian immigrants and they set up camps to house these people and they called them internment camps and many if not most of them were on an island to the west of England called the Isle of Man and I think some others were sent to the Isle of Wight which is to the south of England. I mean, they're part of Britain, but... And the Isle of Man yeah. is now the prime of property, right? Like, a lot of celebrities and rich people move to the Isle of Man. Is that right? You know more about it than I do. <laughs> but these camps, there are still records of these camps, and people go there as tourists, you know, to find out more. And I actually... I did a project, actually, interviewing people who had whose fathers had been in the camps, and also my uncle was sent to one of the camps on the Isle of Man. And they were amazing places. I mean, I can talk about them or not, as you wish. But my father was supposed to go to one of these camps. And my mother told me that they were living in London. And an officer from the Home Office, that's like the American, uh, what do you call it? The Embassy? No, the Ministry of the Interior. And it's a different name in America. Is it State Department? I can't remember. Anyway, that deals with internal matters. So an officer came to my parents' flat and he said, "Is and he asked for my father's by name, is he here? And my mother said, no, he's out. And he said, giving my mother a meaningful look, I will be back here at exactly the same time tomorrow to collect him. So my father didn't stay there he went off and he stayed with friends for the night and at the appointed time let's call it 10 in the morning he wasn't there and he didn't stay there for the next I don't know six weeks or something anyway in due course the officer from the home office came back is uh is, is he there no he's not and he just went away and that was it so my father was never interned and he was damn lucky because an awful lot of the Jewish men who had come over here were interned for a year, typically for a year. So, uh, I mean, as I say, my uncle, one of my uncles was interned and he told me a lot about it and how they lived and what they did and all the rest of it. Wow, that is a, a remarkable story, and uh, well, the so Amer glad Americans did the yeah. same with the Japanese, didn't they? I think they interned the Japanese, and I mean, it finally dawned on these bright sparks that Jews were very unlikely to be spies for the German government. But in the beginning, they weren't; they didn't know, and they weren't taking chances. And later on, they realised that actually these guys are very loyal to Britain, which they were. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's been a crazy history for the Jewish people in Europe. I know that they were kicked out of England by the Queen. And what... Well, not... Yes, do you want to share... share okay, so I've done some research on the history of the Jews in England. We are dealing with a uh, 
a little lawnmower issue here. It should be over quickly. We'll do a little John Deere commercial break here. We're sponsored by John Deere. Best tractor trailers available. Pause. And we're back. <laughs> okay. So, oh yes, I've been doing some research on the history of the Jews in Cambridge. Um, I don't know how much your listeners know, but Jews came over to England with William the Conqueror from France, 1066. Does that date mean anything to you? No. Okay. The Norman Conquest, the Normans who were basically Northern French, they were something else not long before then, but they were Northern French at that point. The King, King William of Normandy had a claim to the British throne and so they invaded Britain and took over. And English, the reason English has so many Latin and French words in it is because it was ruled by French people for about 300 years. And so when William of Normandy came over here in 1066, he brought, I don't know how many, some hundreds probably of Jews with him because Jews, wherever they went, they were noted for being good for business, good for trade, multilingual, and so on. So Jews settled in various parts of England, and Cambridge was one of the places they settled in. And they lived here for a bit more than 200 years. And the main thing they did was money lending, because that was all they were allowed to do. They weren't allowed to do businesses and trades and um, so they lent money and a lot of the main buildings in Cambridge including and in uh, the whole of this region actually including churches and colleges were built with Jewish money mm. now the king forced the Jews first of all he would levy huge taxes on the Jews and secondly he forced the Jews uh, they weren't allowed to leave their wealth to their children. The king confiscated it. So by and by the king got very rich and the Jews got poorer and poorer. And about 1275, when the Jews were really quite poor and couldn't do much anymore, they were thrown out. But you talked about the queen. The king's mother was a very pious lady, you know, very Christian. And she didn't like Jews. And she had as her dowry when she got married, she was given Cambridge and Oxford and a few other places. And she decided she did not want her dowry areas polluted with Jews. And so she persuaded her son to throw them out. And so in 1275, they were evicted from Cambridge. They were evicted from the whole country in 1290, but 15 years earlier here, and went back to France, where they didn't stay very long, because after a while they were evicted from there too. But anyway, you asked me about that. Thank, thank you. So I have two last questions for you. Uh, one is, so you lived with Allison's mom, Lynn. Um, she lived with me. She lived with you, oh. yes, your first uh, guest in your house. Yeah. And I was curious, does Allison uh, remind you of Lynn? 
Well, Alison reminds me a lot of Lynn in her appearance. She also reminds me of her dad, who I remember very mm. well. Yes, Gary lived uh, with you both as well for a little while. He did, and dare I say, before they were married, he moved in with Lynn and with me. I mean, I was just <laughs> a landlady, but they lived there. Uh, so Alison does remind me of Lynn a lot in her appearance, but I think she's maybe a bit more outgoing than Lynn. Lynn is quite... Re- I mean, Lynn is friendly and interesting and lovely. Of course. But she's more reserved, I think, than Alison seems to be. So that's the main difference. Maybe a bit more like her dad, who, I, as I remember, he was mm. quite outgoing. He, Gary definitely is. Yeah. yeah. So I see both of them in Alison. Yeah. And uh, my other question for you is, uh, so we have a lot of viewers who are millennials and are starting their careers do you have any ad- advice any uh, words that you live by or any words of advice for the younger generations out there well the world that you younger generation live in is so different from how it was in my day in my day you could just pick up a job anywhere I mean it didn't have to be a very good job but if you were short of money I lived for a long time just working when I needed money and then not doing anything just traveling around or doing nothing in particular when I didn't need money. Kind of like what we're doing now. Yes. But one thing I would... Well, two things I would say. First of all, if you... um, If you aim to do what you enjoy, what you really Mm. like, because you're going to be working for an awful lot of years... If you start working in your 20s, you may still be working in your 50s or 60s. That's a lot of years to be doing things you don't like. And I could tell you stories, which I won't know, (laughs) about people who did things they didn't like and what a miserable time they had. So think about, if you don't have a professional ambition, think about what you enjoy doing and whether there's a career associated with that. That's number one. Number two... If you find yourself doing something you don't enjoy or the thing you thought you'd enjoy, you don't, it's never too late to do something else. I mean, I started studying at the age of 32. I left school when I was 16 and worked. And then when I was 32, I finished what you would call high school and did a degree and then I did a PhD. And I absolutely loved all that. I loved every minute of it. So it is never too late. Don't give up on what you... I mean, I could say don't give up on your dream, <laughs> dreams, but that sounds very sentimental. And No, that, that's amazing corny. advice. Yeah, fo- follow your passions, you know. Follow your passion. And if you find yourself in a direction that you don't want to be in, change it. Do something that's better. I, I love that. And it's great to talk to you because... You know, for me, I started working at The Cube, the technology TV show, because I was so interested in broadcasting. And, you know, you've done that for 25 years, and me doing this podcast is my way of, you know, trying it out and seeing if I love it, and so far, I absolutely do. Um, So thank you so much for joining, and I just want everyone to know that you have a book coming out soon. Um, Hopefully, you're in the process of writing it. Um, do you want to quickly touch on that? Okay, well, I'll just try, I'll try and be quick because I could talk for several <laughs> hours, as I'm sure you can imagine. The book is basically literary love affairs, that's to say love affairs in literature between Muslims and Christians going back to 
early, early times, I start with um, the Thousand and One Nights, the Arabian Nights, which is, you know, 8th century onwards. And I end up, I end up more or less in modern times, but I just skipped over recent history. But it's stories which feature love affairs between Muslims and Christians. And the way they meet each other usually is because one or other of them is enslaved by the other people. And so that's why I've called it a slave to love. Mm. Interesting. All right. Well, I cannot wait to read that. Uh, Once it's out, I'll put a link here to the book uh, in the podcast. Um, But thank you so much for coming on and being our tour guide today in Cambridge. It's been lovely so far. A pleasure. I'm so pleased that you were able to come and it's lovely to be with you and you're a great listener, by the way. (laughs) Appreciate it. Um, So everyone, thank you for listening and um, we'll be bringing you more content shortly from our trip around the world. Signing off, this is Sam.